So for the sermon this morning, I actually need a couple of volunteers, and let me just tell you what what I'm going to ask you. I'm not going to make fun of you or make you do anything too ridiculous. I'm not going to make you look silly or stupid, okay? You're just going to have to follow a set of very basic instructions, but you are going to have to get up and move around a little bit. So I need like maybe two volunteers. Could I have two volunteers? Lindsay, if you would just stand right there in the aisle where you are. Maybe if I could get... Tim, if you would just stand... That's perfect. Stand right there in the aisle where you are. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you a set of instructions, and you're just going to follow them. If at any time you can't, it's going to be like turn and walk. If you're going to run into something, stop. Okay? I don't want anybody going to the hospital. Well, the pastor said I had to walk. All right? If you're going to run into something, stop. First direction, and I know if anybody's watching online or like watching the recording, you're not going to see any of this. Sorry. Um, so first direction is turn and face any other direction than what you're facing right now. Okay? Just turn. Okay. All right. Here's the instructions, right? Turn 90 degrees to the right. Walk forward 10 steps. Okay, turn around 180 degrees. Okay, so, so, so I'm up front. My instructions led me to the front and center. I don't know what's wrong with you guys. But, but the instructions were clear and totally worked for me. Now, let's do this different. Go back to your starting points and back to where you first faced, okay? We're going to do this a little bit different, okay? Remember which direction you were facing. All right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to walk in your aisle toward the front of the room until you get to the front aisle, okay? Okay. Once you get to the front aisle, turn toward the pulpit and walk along the front aisle till you get to the front of the, uh, right in front of the pulpit. Okay, now turn and face the middle back doors of the sanctuary. What was different? Do you see how we're all here together? All right, thank you guys. You can have a seat. Give them a big round of applause. What was different? In the first set of instructions, it was all related to the person. Your left your right, your number of steps. And I gave directions based on where I was, how I was facing my experience, where I wanted to go, and they all ended up somewhere completely different. In the second round, I gave instructions that did not depend on the person, but they depended on things outside of the person. For everybody in this room, the stage is in the same place. Doesn't matter what you think or feel about it. The stage is here. The front of the room is here. The aisles are here. The front aisle is here. They're not open for discussion or debate. That's where they are. And so the discussions, or rather the directions, were based on things outside of ourselves that didn't depend on us. I think the first set of instructions is how our world tries to deal with things. 
Everybody turn their own way. Your left is your left. Your right is your right. Your up is your up and your down is your down. Your preference is your preference. And then we look around and we go, why are you way over there and you're way over there? Something must be wrong with you. And we wonder why everybody doing their own thing in their own way doesn't lead us to more unity because it doesn't work that way. But when we have a standard outside of ourselves, beyond our interpretation, our preference, our perspective, then we saw there can be a sense of unity. But it raises a question, doesn't it? What is strong enough? What is a good enough standard outside of ourselves? Because that idea has been abused throughout all of the world's history to cause people to do things that were harmful to them or to others. We've all seen instances of abusive authority. And so we decide, well, let's just go to my left and my right and however I want to go because I don't want to have that abuse of authority. So we'll just get rid of all authority and everybody just do what you want. But that doesn't work either causes chaos and dissension and arguments. So what is enough to have a standard that we can all look to to say that's the direction? And the answer is right there in the question I'm asking in the title of this sermon, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Now, I'm guessing most of us, maybe not all, but many of us, at least in this room, are Christians. We've been saved by Jesus Christ. We've come to believe in him. Maybe you've been raised in the church or come to the church later in your life. But you would say, of course, Jesus is enough. Of course, he's our standard. But day after day after day, we're still having to answer that question. Is he enough for today? Do I really believe Jesus is enough now? In my situation, in this culture today, with everything that's changing, is Jesus truly still enough? Which brings us to Colossians. I've called this series Watershed. It's this idea that a watershed determines kind of which direction water will flow in that particular area. And we've used this to say Jesus is our watershed. He determines the course of our life. We have to change because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And Paul writes this letter of Colossians to this group of Christians in a city called Colossae. And he says in verses 3 through 8 that they have believed in Christ. They are Christians. They have real faith. They've shown real evidence of that faith. They've shown love for one another because of their faith. It's a real church of real Christians. Then he goes on and he prays for them. In verses 9 through 14, he wants them to really know Christ. It's like he's saying, great, you're Christians, but keep going deeper. Don't get distracted by other things. And we looked at that last week. In the rest of this letter, we see that they are struggling with some things. They're being distracted. In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul warns them, don't be taken in by new ideas. Human philosophy, see, those things are nothing new. They faced them back in the first century. We still face them today. In chapter 2, verse 16, he warns them, don't get caught up in empty kind of religious human rituals. They struggled with that too. Well, I just do this because it's just the right thing to do, or I was taught it, and this is just what my church always did, or my religion always does. Why? I don't know. And Paul says, don't get caught up in those things. 
You see, they had believed in Jesus, but now we're being tempted to think maybe Jesus is not enough. Maybe I need something else, some new ideas, some old religious practices. Maybe Jesus is not enough. So I want to ask us this morning to answer the question in our own lives, is Jesus enough? And Paul gives one of the most incredible answers about Jesus in verses 15 to 20 of Colossians chapter 1. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 is considered one of the most powerful passages on who Jesus Christ is in the entirety of Scripture. It is a master class on who Jesus is. So let me read this for us. I just want to put the whole thing on the table before us before we pick through it. Listen or follow along in your Bibles with Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And if you don't, or if you do have a Bible, you're going to want to have it open uh, because I'm not putting the Colossians passage up here. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you underneath uh, somewhere. So you can open up to Colossians chapter 1. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, He might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Is Jesus enough? Let's look at how Paul answers this question and how he's pointing these Colossian believers that are in situations kind of like us, kind of like... Should we give in to some of these things in the world? What does it mean to be a Christian today? And it all comes back to this question, is Jesus enough? And Paul begins by talking about Jesus being enough for all of creation. In verses 15 to 17, he's talking about everything that's been created and how Jesus is supreme over all of it. Now, remember, they're being tempted to let go of Christ. And I don't mean like somebody's coming up to them going, oh, you should deny your faith. I mean, there in their quietness of their own mind, they're going, I just don't know anymore. I used to really hold on to this. I used to really believe, but I'm not really sure anymore. Maybe Jesus is not enough. Maybe I need something else. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul prays for them. We looked at this last week. What's so amazing is what Paul prays for them. He doesn't pray for safety or security or health. Not that those things are wrong to pray for. But in Paul's mind, that's not their ultimate need. Their ultimate need was to know God. He says, I pray that you would know God and his will. And he goes on, he says that God in verses 13 to 14 has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So they need to know God and his will and God and his will are laser focused on Jesus Christ and what he has done. 
So Paul wants them to be really sure that they know who Jesus is. And Paul knows at the heart of everything they're struggling with in their church is the answer to the question, who is Jesus? And the corollary question, is he really, truly enough? So in verses 15 to 17, he says four really important things. If you're a note taker, today's a good day to take notes. There are so many things in this passage that we need to ask ourselves. Do I accept this to be true about Jesus? Will I trust it? Will I believe in it? Is your Jesus in line with who Paul says Jesus is? Look at verse 15. He starts off these four important things about Jesus. In verse 15, he says, the son is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Image in this context and the way they use it means a perfect representation of something. Or at least a representation in some way. We'll get to the perfect representation in a moment. This word is used in Genesis chapter 1 all the way back in creation. God creates Adam and Eve in his image. Humanity, all of humanity, was to be a picture of, Not perfect, not complete, but a picture of who God is. We were to reflect or image who God is. And I think that's part of it here. That Paul's saying, when we look at Jesus, we see what it truly means to be human. But there's a lot more than that. Image was also used to describe the statues and the idols that people worshipped. That statue, that idol of of a foreign god or goddess, it was an image. It was to represent that god or that goddess. And throughout scripture, there is a very clear command to God's people, you shall not worship an image. You shall not worship an idol. In fact, the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What God is saying is that anything else you might worship as an image of something else, or even as an image of God, if you are worshiping that, it is less than God. And that's why, as followers of God, we are not to create images and worship them. Whether they're images of God or not, we are not to create and worship images. So how can Paul say the Son is the image of the invisible God? If we are not to create and worship images because they are less than God, and Paul says Jesus is the perfect image of God, do you understand what he's saying? He is God. 100% equal in every way. Jesus is not a lesser image of God. He is the perfect image of God. Jesus is enough because he is God. But wait, there's more. At the end of Colossians 1.15, he says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. This is a little tough because we have to get into their culture, their mindset. Firstborn to us means the one who was born first. So Lindsay is my firstborn. She's my oldest child, right? That's what we think and what it means. And it does mean that, but it means so much more. So we have to understand how they used this word. And it has caused a lot of trouble for people throughout the ages. 
Specifically, Jehovah's Witnesses take this verse and they say, well, Jesus is the firstborn, therefore he must have been born first in creation. He was a created being that just turned out to be a really awesome guy and Jesus was really used by God. That's not what scripture says and that's not what this verse means. Firstborn in their culture did not just mean born first into a family. It meant that it was one who was most important in that family. The firstborn, and again, typically, yes, the actual one that was born first, but that one would inherit more than anybody else. That one would have more authority than anyone else. So this concept of firstborn includes priority, priority, supremacy, and authority. We know in this context, it does not mean that Jesus was created first because in verse 16, it clearly says in him, all things were created. And Paul goes on to list a whole bunch of things. We'll look at that in a second. But his point in that passage is every created thing was created by, through, and for Jesus Christ. He is saying, here's Jesus. Here's all of creation. Why would he one sentence before it say, oh, well, actually, Jesus is just part of creation. It's not what he's saying. He's saying he has a position over creation, and he's using this cultural word that they understood to say that he has the authority, this authority and primary role of the firstborn. Now, that's easy for me to say, right? I can say anything I want. I'm up here. I have the, the, the microphone. Let's look and see what scripture says. Psalm chapter 89, verse 27. God is making a promise to David, King David, in the Old Testament. And he's promising that one of David's offspring, not even his children, but his descendants, someday down the lineage of David, he's making a promise. And he says this, I will appoint him, this future descendant, to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings above the earth. A later child to be born will be God's firstborn. Do you see that he's not talking about birth order? He's talking about position and authority. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God tells Moses to say something to Pharaoh. This is before Pharaoh let the, uh, the Israelites go out of Egypt. They're still enslaved and God is sending Moses to Egypt. And he tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. Well, that's weird. What about Adam? What about all those generations that came before Israel? What about Abraham? He came before Israel because he's not using firstborn in the sense of the guy who was born first. In their culture, it's not about the order of birth, but a priority of importance. So in Colossians 1.15, Paul says, Jesus is more important than anything else in creation and has all authority over everything in creation more important, and has all authority. So, so far, let me sum up. Jesus is enough because he is the perfect image of God. And now Jesus is enough because he has authority over all creation. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 16. Paul says, for in him all things were created. And here he wants to kind of answer some of those questions in people's heads if you've ever taught uh, people, especially kids, you know, well, what about this? What about that? Paul's like, wait a minute. Let me just answer those right at the front here. 
He says things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, we can go point by point through this, this, this list. What does he mean by heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities? There, there's goodness to be found there. There's some good truth. But I don't think that's Paul's point. Paul is laying out a list that encompasses everything in all of creation. There is nothing we can think of. Well, what about this worldly authority? Nope, it's included there. What about this world leader? Nope, it, it's included there. What about the angels? They're included there. What about the demons? They're included there. What about sinners? They're there. Saints? They're there too. Adam and Eve? Absolutely. All created things. What about Russia and Ukraine? It's there. It's in the list. What about America? Yep, it's in the list. All things are listed here. And Paul's point is to take them all together and say that all of them have been created in Christ. They were created for Christ and by Christ. And again, the point is, Jesus is greater than everything. Anything we or the Colossians might be tempted to give into and to think, I don't know, this is really important. I kind of need to bend what I think and my religion. I need to bend it to this in the world because this is really important. Paul comes right out, levels the playing field and says, Jesus is greater than that. Don't give in. Don't change. Look to Jesus Christ. This idea of in Christ is a big deal for Paul. And and it's bigger than what we can possibly go into this morning. But let me just give you an illustration to understand what he's talking about. All creation in Christ. In a couple weeks, Lord willing, uh, my family's going to be going for a vacation in the Adirondacks. Every year we go and we rent a home and, and we have fun and, and just it, it's a wonderful time. We're looking forward to it. Adirondacks is the place we're going to be. We, we are going to be in the Adirondacks. But it's more than that. If you think about it, being in the Adirondacks defines our experience there. We're not going to be in the desert. We're not going to be at the Grand Canyon. We're not going to be in Hawaii. That would be cool too. We're going to be in the Adirondacks. And so well, what are we going to experience there? Well, we're going to experience the Adirondacks. It defines our experience. It defines our purpose. We are going specifically to be in the Adirondacks. We want to hike and swim and enjoy our time there and see the sights. We are going to be there. It defines our purpose. What Paul is saying is that all creation has a purpose and a definition of being in Christ. It's why the world was created, to know him, to live in relationship with him, and to submit to his authority, because he is over all things. The end of verse 16 is crucial. All things exist for him. All things In heaven on earth, all things in creation exist for the goal of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus enough? Absolutely. You were created for him. This world was created for Jesus, for his purposes. Jesus is enough because he's the perfect image of God. He has authority over all creation. And because all things were created by him, for him, and in him. The fourth thing Paul says, verse 17, 
Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I hated chemistry class. I, I, I can't wrap my head around the equations and how the electrons work together and the molecules and what holds it all together. I don't get it. You can show me the charts and the graphs. I don't get it. But the Bible steps in and says, you know what ultimately holds all things together? It's, it's not nature. It's not just forces of nature. It's not mother nature. It's Jesus Christ. Your life, your cells, your existence holds together moment by moment because Jesus is holding you together. These trees are swaying up here in the wind because Jesus holds them together. The wind is blowing here and bringing the rain that we need because Jesus is holding all things together. And not just here, but to the furthest reaches of our galaxy and the universe. Jesus holds all things together. Everything that exists is held together by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, which means at any given moment, Jesus is absolutely aware and involved in every life, every cell, every moment, every interaction. Jesus holds it all together. Jesus is enough. He is perfect. He is the perfect image of God. He has authority over all creation. He is enough because all things were created by him, through him, and for him. And he is enough because he holds all things together. And there is one overarching point that is inescapable from this passage. Jesus is sovereign over all things. Nothing is exempt in this short list that Paul has given. Jesus is sovereign, has authority over that. You say, but pastor, I'm facing this really difficult situation. Yes, he knows. He's involved. He has a purpose for you in that. And he is powerful and sovereign over that situation. Does that mean everything that's happening in that moment is exactly what Jesus wants? Oh, he's causing my pain. He's causing my suffering. No, it means he's bigger than it. And he can work out his will and his purpose in it. He is sovereign over it. Paul has left nothing out. All things find their purpose in Christ, are sustained by Christ, and exist according to the sovereign eternal will of Jesus Christ. Is your Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Because the Colossians were being tempted to run after something else. Oh, Jesus is great, and we we love him, and we've accepted him, but these other things. I, I think maybe now we're much more modern Christians. We're going to run after these things too. And Paul says, wait a minute, do you really understand who Jesus is? is. We're still tempted to run after things in our world. New ideas, new definitions, new power structures. Christians, we need to come back to God's word and say, I believe on the authority of the divine inspired word of God. Jesus is enough. But something happened to all creation, didn't it? Adam and Eve sinned. All of creation described in scripture is, is broken. It's become an enemy to God. It's separated from God. Is Jesus still enough? Look at verse 18. Because Paul uses this image of a new creation. 
when he talks about the church. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul talks about the church. And throughout Scripture, in the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, he uses this idea of church as a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. There's something new that Jesus, Jesus is doing in this world. We are made to be new in Jesus. We are recreated to be who we were meant to be in the first place before sin entered the world. He reminds the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 9, they've taken off their old selves. And then Ephesians 4, 23 to 24, he tells believers, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self. Jesus is making a new creation. And that new creation is those saved by Jesus Christ, also called in Scripture, the church. If you are a Christian, you've been saved by Jesus, you are part of of the new creation. And Paul says three things about this new creation. He calls the church Christ's body, of which Jesus is the head. Now, here we we would take this, kind of like the firstborn idea. Head means authority, and it does. But it also means more. This is really cool. I hadn't thought of this before in my studying. I I, kind of dug into their culture of what head meant. And I'd heard... I shouldn't say that. I had heard it before. I just sort of dismissed it because it didn't make sense to me. Have you ever done that? But I read it. I was like, wait a minute. Now it's kind of clicking. Because to them, head not only means authority, it also means source. Like headwaters. I get that. But how's the head of the body the source? Where's the body get its food from? It goes in through the head. Where does the body get its water from? Well, it goes in through the head and to the body. Where does the body get its air from? Well, it goes in through the head to the rest of the body. See, in their mind, the head was the source of supplying everything that the body needed. And I thought, well, that makes sense. That's part of what Paul means as well by Jesus being the head. He is our authority and our sustainer. He gives us what we need. Why would we go look for something else? In the middle of verse 18, he says that Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. Like with the first creation and Jesus being the firstborn and having authority over that creation, in the new creation, the church of Jesus Christ, he is the firstborn. But Paul adds to this idea of his authority and he uses the word beginning. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross and then he rose from the dead. He went first. And he calls his brothers and sisters, those saved by him, follow me. And he leads us into a new life, a new resurrected living, a new creation. He has all authority and is the one who began the new creation. And at the end of verse 18, he sums up, I think, the whole passage, so that in everything he might have the supremacy In all things, Jesus would have the supremacy. I do think he's linking this to the church in the immediate context, but I think it applies outside of that as well. But let's not miss this for the church. What is most important to us as a church? So many Christians would say, well, loving people, that's good. We need to go higher. 
What's most important to us as a church must be Jesus Christ. He is supreme over the church. What determines who we are and what we do as a church must be Jesus Christ. He is supreme over the church. Now, you might be thinking, well, duh. Of course, pastor, I get that. So did the Colossians. But they were beginning to give it up. It's so easy to slide away from Jesus. And Paul is locking our gaze on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is our highest purpose. He makes us who we are. He is the goal and author of our salvation. He is our authority and our sustainer. The church today does not need new ideas. The church today does not need old ideas. The church today needs more of Jesus Christ. He is supreme over all things. But wait, there's more. Paul then turns to reconciliation. This creation that is living on its own in sin and rebellion against God. And then there's God and his holiness and his righteousness. How do we get from there to there? What reconciles that problem? What makes it work out the way that God wants it to work out. In verses 19 through 20, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Here we learn two more important truths about Jesus. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. And verse 20, all things will be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God is in Jesus Christ, and all things will be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Who is Jesus? So many people have said, well, he's a great religious man, he's a great religious leader, or he's just a figment of our imagination. He's been made up throughout history of these crazy, wacky, cultish people. The answer to who is Jesus is he is fully and completely God. All the fullness of God is in him. I love this passage in John 14, 8 and 9. Philip, one of the disciples, comes to Jesus and says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus looks at him and basically says, Philip, I don't think you're getting it here. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is God. He is the fullness of God. When we read about Jesus, we are reading about the acts and the works of God. Not some lesser being, some, not some lackey of God, not somebody that human beings falsely put on a pedestal and worshipped and he never wanted it. Have you ever heard that thing? Jesus never really claimed to be God. There it is. It's one of many. He says, you've seen the Father. Jesus is completely equal to God because he is fully God. Jesus is enough for us and enough to reconcile all things because the reconciliation of all things is a God-sized problem. And Jesus is God. But Paul has a point in introducing this. 
What is it that's going to fix the brokenness between God and humanity? That's why Paul says it was God's plan in Jesus to reconcile all things to himself. All of creation is touched by, broken by, infected by, infused with sin. The Bible uses many different words for this. We are living in rebellion against God. The relationship has been broken. We are enslaved to sin. We owe a debt. We are guilty. All of these speak to the brokenness of the relationship. And only God can fix it. But because it is a human problem, it is a human problem to bear and to be punished and to pay the price. So only one who was fully God and fully man could reconcile these two things. And Paul points us to Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can reconcile all things to God. Wait a minute, pastor, though. I have a question. What do you mean reconcile all things? Does that mean everybody's going to heaven? If Jesus reconciles all things, is everybody just going to heaven? Because this is another place that people have used to look and say, see, that's what Paul says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is very clear. There are those who are not saved by Jesus. There are those who will spend eternity in the lake of fire paying the punishment for their own sins. So is Paul lying here? Is he making this up? Is he making a mistake? No. All things will be reconciled to God. The word means to be made right, to be the way God wants it to be. It means to have all of creation fixed. It is fixed because there will be a new heavens and a new earth. The old will be done away with. Creation is fixed because there will be new people of God saved by Jesus Christ, their sin paid for. And it will also be fixed because there will be those who refuse Jesus and they will have been removed from that new creation. And though their sins could have been paid by Jesus, they'll have to be paid by them. It's a harsh truth. But the Bible ends in the book of Revelation. And it describes Jesus who died to save us from our sins, judging all people perfectly. Why is he able to do that? Because he is enough. And he's the only one enough to reconcile all things and to make them right for the rest of eternity. Friends, understand what Paul's saying here. These people had believed in Jesus but they were tempted to go after other new, shiny things from their culture, new ideas that sounded so great. And Paul says, wait a minute. You need to know exactly who Jesus is. We are still being tempted to run after shiny new ideas. Whether it's changing definitions created by God on human gender or sexuality, whether it's politics, new or old religious or human philosophies that we look to and we say, maybe this, if I grab onto it and give in, maybe this will be better because maybe I need something new. And the word of God says, Jesus is enough. He is more than enough. So think about that question in your own life. Is Jesus enough? Because listen to who Jesus is. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Is that your Jesus? Is that your standard? Is that what you're turning to and looking at? Or are you figuring out your own left and your own right and how many steps you want to walk and wonder why everybody's going in different directions? We must answer the question today by declaring in faith, Jesus is absolutely enough, more than enough for everything we can possibly look for. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this big picture of Jesus. Father, as we read a passage like this, our response must be to trust absolutely to submit completely, to obey. Father, check those thoughts in our minds that are out of line with the truth of who Jesus is. Let your word and your truth replace those thoughts. And we are, when we are tempted, as the Colossians were, to run after other things, draw us back to who Jesus is. Remind us who he is. May we have such a big and accurate picture of Jesus Christ through Scripture that we can look at everything else that seeks to pull us away, even our own doubts and thoughts, and be able to say, no way, my Jesus is enough. Father, we thank you for Jesus. As we have seen this huge picture of who Jesus is, we are reminded at the end of this passage that Jesus went to the cross and bled and died in our place. My brain cannot comprehend such love, such grace, such mercy, that the one who is supreme over all things sought to serve us in such a humble way, suffering and dying in our place. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today that's thinking, that's not my picture of Jesus. I don't know if that's really the Jesus I'm trusting in. Father, may this picture give them something to turn toward and to trust in. And may today be the day that they say yes to Jesus being supreme in their life. Yes to Jesus being their savior, their new creator, recreator, their Lord and savior. And for the rest of us, Father, may we continue to trust in, proclaim and live out such a big picture of who Jesus is that it causes the world to take notice and to say, tell me about this Jesus you guys proclaim. We pray all this in the power of the supreme name of Jesus Christ. Amen.